This is a talk of reflection on right view. The subtitle is To see the rainbow is to see conditionality. And I want to reflect on the various meanings of right view, quite a central concept. Just touching a little bit on the idea of emptiness or the middle way and towards the end talk a little bit also about views in the plural, views and opinions. So you may know that the Eightfold Path, that central teaching in early Buddhism, begins with something called right view, or usually translated right view. I find this a little bit shocking given how strongly Elsewhere in the texts, the Buddha criticizes views and clinging to views and holding fixed views. And yet they decided to start the Eightfold Path with view. So sometimes I wonder whether the Buddha was trying to be deliberately provocative. Trying to make us think a little bit. Because even though there's this suspicion about attachment to views and even there are teachings about holding no views at all, at the same time, the goal of the practice is explained as knowing and seeing. Knowing and seeing. And this seeing in Pali comes from the same verb as right view. You may know right view is samaditti, and ditti is the past participle of the verb to see. And the other, this vision, is just the noun, dasana. Vision, seeing. So we have this noun versus a past participle. We have this seeing as opposed to something seen, S-E-E-N the act of seeing or the act of looking versus something seen. I think a view in a way is a seen, S-E-E-N. It's something that's seen always from a particular angle, at a particular time and place. So, for example, um, I can see Rachel's face but someone else will see Rachel from the back of the head. So I have a different view of Rachel. And when we lock into a particular view, that's when the trouble begins. When we assume this is all there is to see. This thing from this particular vantage point, where I am now, with the filters that I have, we could say that we see the thing seen, but we don't see the act of seeing. We don't see what's going on in this invisible activity of me coming to know something. We are oblivious to this activity, to our own biases, to our own filters, to how we are partaking in the view of that thing. Because if we were located somewhere else, we would have a different view. So part of the path is about waking up to perspective. And Catherine talked a lot about this on the first afternoon, perspective. 
waking up to how we are seeing or how we are relating to something. There's even some debate as to whether the Buddha's original insight or awakening had a specific content or not. I know that sounds like a very abstract idea. But you have some texts where it is said that then the Buddha woke up, but not to what? Or that the Buddha was able to know and see, but know and see what? So did the Buddha discover a what or a how? Did the Buddha see a specific thing? Or did they see in a particular way? Is it the content or the modality? Did they come to know that a certain thing was the case? This is true. Or did they come to know things in a particular way or mode? I think it's more a way of knowing, a way of seeing. But also the two aren't separate. Because, of course, how I see determines what I see. How I know determines what I know. How I touch determines what I touch. For example, I can't see that somebody is suffering if I'm looking at them in particular ways from a particular resentful place. Particular notions or fixed ideas I might have about them. In that moment, I just forget they are a sentient, suffering, vulnerable being. So I don't see that. And I think in a way that's why this is right view and not right seeing. The Buddha is suggesting that some ways of seeing allow us to see certain things that are useful for the path. Some views can be helpful. So let's see some of those views that can be helpful, this right view. The first kind of meaning to this right view is what I would call ethical view. Ethical not in the sense that it's a morally right view, but it's a view, it's a way of seeing that takes into account ethics, takes into account that things matter, things have consequences. And Catherine referred to this in her talk, this idea of discerning what is skillful, kusala, or what is unskillful, or I would like to translate it clumsy, akusala. A way of relating, a way of responding to something that just doesn't get you to a good place. It's perhaps counterproductive. It's unwholesome and it's, it's, it's clunky. And to discern this is the first meaning of right view. It's quite an important meaning, hence it comes first, and it, this will be important later in the talk when we talk about moral relativism. So, so this idea that things matter is important to protect us against the idea that, oh, we're not clinging to views, so any view, any opinion is equally valid. So we have to remember, things have consequences, things matter. That's the first meaning of right view. And this comes from acknowledging what, again, Catherine mentioned, the three characteristics, from acknowledging how things are changing and finite and vulnerable and 
imperfect and conditioned. There's this um, modern philosopher I like, Martin Heglund, and he has a book where he asks a very basic question of what is a living thing? And what's the difference between a living thing and a non-living thing? So what's the difference between you or the woodpecker or a tree and a doorknob? A doorknob is not a living thing in that sense. The difference is, Martin Heglund says, that a living thing needs to be doing something in order to keep being it. It needs to be engaged in some activity of self-sustenance. So we exchange gases with our environment, as well as the plants do, or we take some nourishment, and we take out some waste, there's a pumping of blood going around, you know, something needs to be done so this continues. In a way that the doorknob doesn't need to be doing that activity in order to continue being a doorknob. And if any of those conditions fail, I fail. So Haglund said that to be mortal also means to be dependent on others. To be dependent on other people and other things and conditions. Because if it was all up to me, if I didn't depend on anything else for my existence, well, I would go on forever, wouldn't I? You know, <laughs> if I can choose. But I cannot. I depend on certain things that are outside of my control. So, in a way, the three characteristics imply each other. They form a sort of triangle in my mind. What I like to call it, it is our structure of vulnerability. And it's made by this triangle of three characteristics that imply and entail each other. So if I am changing and impermanent, this means I'm vulnerable in the explicit sense that I can be affected by things. Therefore, I change because I'm affected by things, therefore I change. But it's more than that. It means that I'm conditioned by things. I'm not an autonomous entity, completely independent. I'm not a sort of all-powerful self. I depend on certain conditions. And their change means I change too. They affect me. I'm vulnerable, I'm conditioned, I'm finite. I'm changing. In other words, shit can happen. There is something at stake. And this is why we care for one another. This is why we need each other. If we think of a world that would not be changing and vulnerable, where things could not fail and break down, that would be a carefree existence, literally. Not judging it, but it's a very different modality of existence. If things cannot fail and break down, things are not vulnerable, Care is redundant. 
But this is not the reality we inhabit. We inhabit a reality that is vulnerable, is changing, is fragile, and therefore care is very much needed. So seeing this is what allows care and compassion. So this is the right view in the sense that this view, this way of seeing our existence and others' existence and people leads somewhere that can lead to well-being. It leads us to see we need to care for one another. It's ethical in that sense. River was mentioning the two wings of the bird, wisdom and compassion. Well, wisdom is often spoken about as understanding, deeply understanding these three characteristics. Deeply understanding that things are impermanent, imperfect or vulnerable, uh, unsatisfactory and conditioned, dependent, not an autonomous self. Because deeply understanding this leads to care and compassion. In this way they go together. This is already going into the second, perhaps, meaning of right view, which is condition conditionality premium. It's emptiness, the middle way. So if things have consequences, if things matter, they don't just have consequences in an isolated sense, like this thing happens and then it has an effect and that's it. This is a chain, which means things belong to patterns. This has a certain consequence, but also this is the consequence of something else. Things are com connected in a very complex situation. Things are conditioned, conditional and conditioning. River mentioned Vachagota. Then there is um, Kachanagota who um, goes to the Buddha in another of those stories and says, Venerable, it is called right view, right view. They speak about right view. But in one sense, is it right view? And the Buddha replies, Kachana, the world mostly relies on the binary concepts of is and is not. But when you wisely see something arising, you cannot have the concept it is not. And when you see something ceasing, you cannot have the concept it is. Now here, this binary, this concept of is and is not, represent these fixed positions these black and white, these absolutes, that represent how we think, how language works, and how a lot of our minds work. We try to define what things are, and in order to do this, we have to freeze them in time, because things change. If milk changes too much, it's no longer milk, it's yogurt. It's a different thing. Although reality does not have this clear boundaries. And we say, well, it was milk, and now it is yogurt. 
And if you wait a little bit more, it will be something more smelly. So if something changes all the time, and, and if we start looking really deeply, they change second to second, millisecond to millisecond. Can you really grasp anything and define it? Is anything really anything? So you, you start getting into that very abstract space of, is anything real? Is it all illusory? Is anything anything? It's not. It's not real. It's empty. It's illusory. The problem is people misunderstand what this means and they fall into the trap of thinking that this means that things are not, which is one of the binaries, is, is not. We get stuck in debates about whether things exist or don't exist, whether they are real or illusory. But our experience sits in the middle. It does not conform to these binaries and this is what being empty means. This is what emptiness means. And very luckily for us, the best example that I can think of, of things being empty, is a rainbow. So think of a rainbow. A rainbow is a highly dependent phenomenon. You need very specific and fragile conditions for a rainbow to arise. You need the rays of the sun to hit droplets of water at a particular angle and you need to be positioned with the sun to your back in order to see it. If you were somewhere else, you would not see the rainbow. I would go further. If you were positioned somewhere else, the rainbow would not be there because the rainbow needs the sun, the water droplets, and a pair of eyes looking. Quite literally, if no one is looking, the rainbow is not there. A rainbow is technically an optical illusion. Does this mean it doesn't exist? Or that it's not relevant? Because I can take pictures of it, I can describe it. What, what relevance would it say, would it, would it have to say that a rainbow is, is, is not a real thing just because it has these highly fragile conditions in order to arise? A rainbow exists conditionally and a lot of our sensory experience is the same way. If we just look here at the wall there's a bit on top of the light, there's a bit underneath. They have a different color. Which is the real color of the wall? Neither. Depends on the amount of light. You can't say, well, this is the neutral amount of light that reveals the actual color of the wall, and then if you put more light, you see it's too bright, and if you go under this, then it's too shadowy. There's no objectively neutral amount of light. Color depends on the amount of light and someone's seeing. And you could say this with sound and with touch and with taste. It's a highly conditional relationship. So 
Emptiness is not about whether things exist or not, whether they are real or not. It's about how things exist. It's a both and. Things do exist, like the rainbow, in this particular way. So we have the rainbow in this particular way, and it's fluid and it could be otherwise. It's both things. And this is really challenging to our tendency to fix and define things, to go to the binaries of is and is not. There's a famous um, quote in the text that says, to see the Dharma is to see conditionality. And I would like to change that, or add, to see the rainbow is to see conditionality. To see conditionality is to see the rainbow. Because when we see the rainbow, we see its conditions. <coughs> I think in the Tibetan tradition they speak about seeing everything as if it was a dream or an illusion. Well, I suggest we could see everything as if it were a rainbow. And this is a particular way of seeing, a way of viewing things, so that we see their conditionality. It's a practice. trying to experience things aware of their conditionality. That would be a right view, a wise way of seeing and relating and sensing and knowing. And this applies to views and opinions themselves. Our views and our opinions are highly conditional. We tend to think they're not, because that gives us more safety. Well, I think this because it's true. And I'm a very intelligent person, so that's why I think it. Rather than thinking, well, I have this opinion because I was born in such a family and I just happened to read that thing the other day and it influenced me. It undermines our sense of being very intelligent agents that make a lot of decisions and are very clever. But views and opinions, our beliefs about things, conscious, unconscious, they also arise from very specific conditions. They are vulnerable, they are changing. And not of all those conditions are under our control. So let's go back to this idea of what a view is. Something seen from a particular angle at a particular time and place like the sight of a rainbow that's highly conditioned. But we forget this. And then we cling to our view, to our opinion about something that we have seen from one particular angle, maybe. And we become fixed in that binary of is or isn't. It's like this. It's not like that. And that's a reactivity. So the practice is, can we see the conditionality of our views and opinions? Can we see how they have arisen? Can we see it like a rainbow? Can we see what are the conditions that give rise to it? And I think in a way we have an advantage with this. 
because we have all firsthand experienced challenging that binary of is isn't with our very existence whether that's challenging the expectation of who we're supposed to be attracted to who are we supposed to be what kind of expression or behavior are we are supposed to have we have challenged those fixed views and so we have this advantage we know what it is to have like a queer view a queer seeing that escapes those binaries those fixed is and is not so let's capitalize on that gift and develop it further that's one of the four right efforts in the Eightfold Path you have right efforts and it's divided into four efforts and one of them is the effort to further cultivate the skills and virtues that are already present so I would say this capacity to see beyond the binaries is a skill and virtue we already possess and we are called to develop further Of course, the hardest bit is always other people's views and opinions and how wrong they are. We bring a lot of clinging, a lot of reactivity, a lot of defensiveness when we meet with different views. And sometimes for very good reasons. Let me be clear about this. Sometimes for very good reasons. And yet to only remain stuck in there, in that fixity, robs us of the chance to see beyond, to see more wisely at the conditioned nature of a view that we disagree with. We may form a caricature of the other as evil, we may assume why they think what they think, we may even assume views that they actually don't have. Well, if they think this, then they also think that, and because of this reason. And this might not be based on actual experience of this person and talking to them. So in this way, we accentuate the gap between us and another person. We refuse to see anything reasonable in the other, or anything flawed in ourselves. We form these caricatures an is and is not, a simplification. And so I'd like to offer just a few reflections and suggestions about practicing with views. But I want to be clear that this is not an invitation to go where it's most triggering. I want to be very clear. Or to feel an obligation to always be the bigger person when we uh, meet with opinions that for very good reasons we disagree with. So I'd like us to see this developmentally, gradually. It's a little bit like meta practice, where sometimes we practice cultivating friendliness and love for a difficult person. And the teacher will say, well, don't start with the most difficult person, baby steps. So that in a way we do have the aspiration that one day we can develop meta for this difficult person, but that's not where we start. We don't push ourselves into feeling meta for this difficult person. 
And I would say we even accept that we may never be able to feel matter for a particular person. So this is a little bit the same. This is not about going to the most difficult examples we can think of and always trying to be the bigger person, but keeping that aspiration that we can slowly understand more views we disagree with. We see what can we do at the moment in our capacities, something that's safe, that's manageable, accepting that maybe some we will never get there and maybe that's fine. And as I said, this is not about moral relativism, that all views are the same. So let's remember that ethical sense of right view. You know, things have consequences. It's more about softening the tension and the clinging to views so that I can grow and wake up. And perhaps the other person too. The truth is that we do live in a world where people may think very differently than us. And things are more and more polarized. That's something we hear all the time. So a skillful engagement would lead to more understanding and well-being. And I don't know how that can happen if not through listening to each other a little bit better and understanding each other a little bit better. And this is where seeing the conditionality of our views and opinions comes into play. Give you some personal stories. So I said on the first day, you know, I'm obviously not British. Uh, I come from the south of Europe. So I'm specifically from Barcelona and you may know that in that region, in Catalonia, there's have been some political conflicts that uh, they picked in 2017 when the Catalan government declared independence from Spain. So I remember that time as a very tense time where I felt my society was becoming divided 50-50 and me as other people were starting to fear another civil war in Spain. About half of the inhabitants of Catalonia wanted independence and thought that it was our right to vote whether we wanted independence or not. And the other half did not want independence and thought that we did not even have the right to ask people if they wanted independence. And things got more and more and more tense, more and more polarized. Now, I had and maintain a position in that conflict. So I'm not neutral in the sense of, oh, I have absolutely no opinion, and I think that any opinion is exactly the same. I have a position and I maintain it. But I started to see how the people that I agree with, those on my side, started to share, I believe unconsciously, fake news about the other side. Because of course if they read something that says they're horrible, they've done this thing, they went to this place and they burned this house, it must be true. Because they're the bad ones. So I'm going to share it on Facebook. And anything that they heard about their side 
that was negative assumed instinctively this must be fake news with the good ones. So I tried in that situation to be balanced and nuanced while having an opinion. Again, I was not neutral in that sense, but I discovered almost no one was interested in nuance. I was everyone's enemy. To be equanimous was a synonym of being everyone's enemy at that time. And people would have that slogan. To be, the world is equidistante, to be equally near all the positions. That was to be with the enemy. A very uncomfortable position to be in. But what I saw is not just that people were not interested in nuance because of the clinging to their opinion. They were not interested in understanding why the other side thought the way they did. And I saw that you can be morally right and still reactive. Because I had an opinion, I thought that's the right one and I have my reasons and I've thought about it, etc. And yet, I see many people who agree with me and who are still very reactive. And side by side, this opinion that I think is a good one, they are engaging in a lot of unskillful behavior, a lot of reactivity. I was very glad, very fortunate, to have a very close friend during those times who held the opposite opinions during that conflict as me. And we also have very different opinions politically in general, in many things, including the culture wars, and she has mixed feelings about a retreat like this. So it's difficult. And yet I'm so glad to be his friend because we have the willingness to talk about these things that we disagree and try to understand why we think the way we do. And thanks to this, to the places we are willing to engage, we are willing to go together, I can see sometimes the pain behind her position or the fear or the vulnerability behind her views. So I can have compassion and understanding. I usually discover a mixture of genuine and reasonable questions and concerns that she has and ways of answering those that I disagree with. But I can acknowledge that there are genuine concerns and questions that she has. It's not like She's horrible and wants to think about these horrible things. And no, she has genuine questions and concerns. And then she reads things and she has influences. And so do I. And we come to different conclusions. There's also certain places where we're not willing to go. Because we did. And it got too heated. So we don't want to burn ourselves. It's like, oh, if we go this very often, we're going to destroy our friendship. And so we agreed, we're not going to go to this particular place. Or we're going to discuss this up to the point where we see it's getting out of hand. So there are boundaries that we can uh, implement, and we should. 
But I also acknowledge that there is a final boundary to the friendship. At least right now. That if were she to hold certain opinions and views, I could not be his friend. Right now, I would not feel safe. I wouldn't feel accepted by her if she had certain opinions. I would still like to understand her, but I would, it's not my job. And hopefully, someone who has less at stake would be able to talk to her and understand, and things can shift then. But not me. So there are places where we go, and it's really fruitful, places where we try not to go so much, places that we decide not to go and maintain our friendships, and I know there are places that would break the friendship. But when it's possible, when it's safe, to the degree that we're capable at the moment, it's part of our practice to lower our reactivity around views. So through these chats with her, I've gotten a fuller picture of things, rather than the old image of touching just one part of the elephant and deciding this is what an elephant is. And then someone else touches a different part of the elephant and says, like, this is what an elephant is. And then they start arguing. An elephant is like this. No, it's not like that. This is a concept of epistemic humility, acknowledging that I know little, I know one part. So maybe I talk to you and you tell me about the other part and we start to get a fuller picture. Also, epistemic humility in the sense of acknowledging that my views are also very conditioned and limited. I may hold them because I was born in a particular social class or a particular culture, in a particular family. Because, as I said before, I just happened one day to read one thing that influenced me and then the algorithm, because I clicked on this, showed me that other thing of the same kind of view and we go down that rabbit hole and we end up with completely different Facebook feeds than our friend or neighbor. Highly conditioned. But if we are willing to have some conversations, we can make space for some more understanding and empathy, even if we are still disagreeing. Even if we don't convince the other person or they don't convince us. And maybe that's not the point. So reactively, we go when we hear a view that we disagree with quite strongly, we go, how could anyone think that? How could anyone think that? And perhaps more wisely, we can reframe. Why might a well-meaning person hold this view? Why could that be? We can ask, if we are willing, we can ask so that we can learn about the conditionality of their view, how it arose, what makes up this particular rainbow. We can ask someone, well, what life experiences have you had that have led you to have this view? Was there a particular event that influenced you, or person, or thing that you read or saw? Was there a time where you held a different view? And why did that change? We can ask, why is this important to you? What do you think it entails? 
We can also think what core values are they trying to protect, things that are important to them, maybe a concept of fairness or autonomy or sanctity or care and compassion or loyalty. What, what is it? What is behind the specifics of the view? And equally, what are the life events and influences we've had that shape our views? <coughs> Why have they changed? What values, what core values are underneath those views? If we approach this with genuine interest, perhaps we can start to see a fuller picture, to have a different way of seeing, a different mode of seeing that allows us to understand more and to have more compassion in the end. I feel the alternative would be just to assume that people are simply evil. And that's the binary again, is, is not. Not a very useful or wise way of seeing. I'd like to end by going back to Kachanagota. Kachanagota asks the Buddha, they say right view, it's called right view, but in one sense, is it right view? And the Buddha replies, Kachana, the world mostly relies on the binary concepts of is and is not. But when you wisely see something arising, you cannot have the concept it is not. When you see something ceasing, you cannot have the concept it is. Also, the world is mostly ensnared by attachment, clinging and stubbornness. But if you do not cling in this way to those binaries, you will have no doubt that whatever arises or ceases is in fact just vulnerability. You will have first-hand knowledge of this. It is in this sense that it's called right view. So I will end here and we can sit quietly for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
dot org slash donate.